0: Ready to roll?
1: Yeah, ready to
0: go. Jerry Cullen, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for finally doing this, man.
1: Yeah, sorry to uh, have taken so long, but uh, finally here.
0: I'm going to make this easier. Each one of my paychecks, I'm just going to send you a few dollars because I'm just spending all my money on your stuff, man. I just got the Boston Babes jersey. I got the Mickey Mantle Joplin Miners number 12 rookie jersey. My Excellent. next purchase is going to be the, the Shoeless Joe Jackson, the uh, Greenville Spinners one. I love that right. jersey. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a good one. Any, I'm going to sound very uh, generic right now. Favorite product that you've made recently that just pops?
1: Recently? Um, I'm having a hard time. You know, actually, what some of the things I'm working on right now that are not out yet. Um, I found a bunch of photos from early Mexican professional baseball history, and they're not well known. They're really obscure teams, but the, the graphics are just crazy. So I can't wait to get these out.
0: Before um, I fanboy out here, because I'm gonna, I am going i do not want to fanboy out too much. I want to talk about Ebbetsfield Flannels because I went right away. Put on the, I put on the seals hat. I told you the jerseys I'm buying. What is it, and what products do you sell?
1: Well, basically, we uh, specialize in authentic vintage athletic wear. Uh, we started in 1988 with baseball, first company to do the Negro Leagues in apparel, and uh, many, many other things. Um, we do some MLB vintage jackets, uh, you know, the old uh, Jackie Robinson satin jacket from the early 50s, among many others. Um, we do NFL Doreen jerseys from the 50s and 60s primarily. So the Bart Starr authentic Doreen jerseys still made in the same factory as it was um, originally. Um, so, you know, we kind of we kind of run the gamut. We, we kind of became known for doing a lot of unorthodox things like the hat you're wearing, the old Pacific coast league uh, was one of the first things we did, the Negro leagues, as I mentioned. Um, and then we're into, uh, you know, the more mainstream leagues um, actually only more recently.
0: Take me back to a young Jerry Cohen, Brooklyn boy, right?
1: Absolutely. Yep. What neighborhood?
0: Ground Heights. Very nice. Normal childhood, big sports fan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Normal in the sense that, but The irony here is I was born in Brooklyn the first year there was no Brooklyn Dodger baseball. (laughs) So I always say in a sense, the business is, is an attempt to right that wrong, to fill that gap that I felt um, as a kid. Of course I had the Mets. So that's, I am still a fan by the way, I'm following the Mets are great this year. Um, And, uh, and so yeah, I was fascinated. Not only I had a dad who uh, followed the Brooklyn Dodgers and Jackie Robinson, and and he was a wealth of knowledge. So that gave me my start. But later on, you know, eleven, twelve years old, I really started to get interested in the graphics and the uniforms.
0: Do you know Todd Radom?
1: Yeah, sure. I know. I know who Todd is. Yeah.
0: Todd comes on all the time and you guys are so similar because it seems like you have that fascination, slight obsession with the jerseys. Was it always a dream of yours to start a Jersey hat company? No, or was
1: it- it's funny. Um, my dream was, you know, okay. I had several dreams as a kid. I wanted to be Tom Seaver. That probably wasn't <laughs> going to happen. Uh, and then I wanted to be Keith Richards. So that, that kind of took over for a while. Um, and then in my late twenties, I got reinterested, I guess, in baseball, and I wanted to—I wanted just for myself—one of these old flannel uniforms or jerseys, and nobody made the right. And uh, I got a little obsessed with the whole idea. Started to do a lot of research. Of course, back then for you for you uh, kids, no internets existed, so uh, it meant a lot of time on the phone, just bugging people. Um, You know, in the in the sporting goods companies, long story short, um, to make things easier to follow, I I ended up finding a guy who had warehouse some old wool baseball flannel uniform fabric. Okay. And I started buying one roll at a time. You know, that's all I could afford. And and uh, had had a pattern made and uh, had some shirts made for myself. And then uh, it's only when other people wanted me to make them shirts that I, uh, it occurred to me that this could be a business. So you weren't
0: pitching for the Mets, Mets you weren't no, on stage. That, that didn't what work were you out. doing What were you doing before this then?
1: Well, I was playing music. So okay, um, okay. So this, the idea of the baseball jerseys, I thought it'd be really cool to wear on stage, you know, an old flannel jersey. Wow. Um, and so that's how it started.
0: That is incredible. And do you remember the first jersey that someone really like noticed or talked about?
1: Yeah, I made a couple of bootleg unlicensed Seattle Pilots jerseys. You know, I remember, uh, you know, you uniform nerds, of course, will remember the Pilots were there one year and the road jerseys instead of gray were that powder blue. And I, I went to the, uh, the, the Rite Aid drugstore and found the shade of blue and dyed all the road p- Pilots jerseys in my bathtub. And, uh, and so those are some of the first shirts I made actually
0: right now, your company is known for the painstakingly detailed Every, the Jersey's a heavy wool. Everything's perfect about it early on. Like I can go on right now. I can go on eBay, find a Jersey from China just to get it sent to me. It's going to be crappy yeah. material. A yeah. lot of people probably wouldn't know the difference. Why was it so important for you early on to make the product so perfect?
1: Well, because there was no, you know, in my view at the time and still today, there's no point in doing something unless you're doing it right. And I, I love the original so much that I would not be, a lot of people tried to talk me into into doing it in a, in a less authentic way. You know, they say wool is too itchy. Nobody's going to care if you make it out of a different fabric. But um, being as stubborn as I am about things. <laughs> I I actually went ended up going to the, one of the woolen mills in New England and convincing them to start making it again. Um, of course, they eventually closed down, and there's there's no more wool in the U.S. Uh, or hardly any. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But um, you know, it was incredibly difficult to do what we did. People I think don't have a proper understanding of the challenges of making athletic garments as they actually were, rather than. Just superficially, like a certain cap company everybody knows, who I won't mention. They do vintage caps, but they all they do is embroider a logo on them. That's it. Yeah, and that to me is not enough.
0: I love the leather on the inside of some of the hats. Like some of the detail, like you have to find other sport nerds. Like look at the inside. There's leather on the inside. There's this. It's like, it's incredible, man. It really is.
1: Well, we unfortunately, we we don't do leather anymore because the last leather hat band supplier went out of business like – 15, 20 years ago. So, but that's that's the level we went to is to try to source all this stuff and and do it the right way. And I think it makes a difference in the end.
0: While the company's picking up, did you ever think maybe this isn't worth it? I'm going to New England getting the wool. I'm doing this. Did that ever come about? You know,
1: you know what it was? It was so much fun in the beginning. You know, I I, I learned so much and met so many great people, people who Frankly, I probably haven't thanked enough and not not all of them very well known, but I would, right when I was ready to give up at many junctures, I would just suddenly meet the exact person I needed to meet. Someone who had, say, a bunch of original Pacific Coast League caps, you know, and people who just loved what I was doing. And I think it enabled me to find common ground with a lot of really knowledgeable, interesting people either collectors or fans or people in the actual sporting goods industry, some of the old companies who are all gone now, who I befriended, they they couldn't understand why I was interested in this old stuff. You know, I would say, do you have any more of that fabric use guys used to use? in the... They go, why do you care about that old crap? We don't use that anymore. So it was so much fun. I'd say the first five years was I was so busy. I mean, I was working 18 hours a day. Most days traveling a lot to do research because, again, no internet. Um, and so I didn't really have time to think about you know, um, I never thought about giving up, that's that's for sure. And there was always enough sales coming in just to keep us going. You know, we never really hit hit a place where we couldn't do what we were doing.
0: You weren't a business guy per se, but did you have a business model like because who says I'm going to start selling San Francisco seal? pcl has yeah. like who thinks that of that like i know you I know did. Um, yeah.
1: my business model was to put an ad in baseball america okay which i think cost me 200 and went to the mailbox and waited for people to send me orders you know and that's how we did it one one check at a time
0: and it, i'm telling you your whole business model is fascinating and you're still running it and stuff Is there a reason, because I know you're jumping around, there's some Japanese stuff on there, there's stuff, now you're doing Mexican baseball. Is there a reason why uh, lack of NBA stuff?
1: Yes. I mean, really, uh, right now, the licensing game has been so consolidated. It's very, very hard, if not impossible, to get in. And we were kept out of MLB licensing for 30 years. Everybody it has nothing to do with your willingness to pay the royalty or the quality of your product. That's unfortunately, people assume that it's a, it's a very political um, game and it's controlled by a few big players and they don't want competition. Um, So really the NBA to, to answer your question specifically, I really think the NBA is is a fanatics uh, controlled um operation right now as is almost all licensing for the major sports leagues at this point
0: you mentioned the little issues with have you had issues with other teams and leagues and stuff by recreating stuff
1: well the only issues are where we want to do it and they don't let us <laughs> so you know um i went to uh major league soccer because you know uh, soccer fans will know this Many years ago in the old North American soccer league, there was a Seattle Sounders and a Portland um, Timbers and we're in Seattle. So I thought, well, we'll do the old Sounders thing and I'll just get a license for them. Even though it was unrelated to the current MLS team. Okay. They held the rights. I thought, okay, uh, I got it. They love the idea, but I couldn't get anybody to say yes, you know, because every it's a, it's a big league and they have a lot of bureaucrats and nobody wants to go out on a limb and say, "Okay, we're going to let this little company do it, so it never happened um, well,
0: that, that's frustrating too, right?
1: It is very frustrating because creatively, you just know it's a great idea, like in that case, um, nobody else is, and nobody else is doing it and uh, or they're not doing it right so um, that that's happened a lot actually throughout the years.
0: Take me to the moment when you knew okay, this is something, this is the way I can support my family. This is my new job. Was there the moment?
1: Yeah, there was. There definitely were. There are a few moments. I mean, I remember uh, the first time we moved into an office. And so my my wife, who's my wife at the time, we're no longer married, but we're still partners. um, Lisa and I, we, we ran the company out of the dining room of our apartment in Seattle for probably the first two years. And then we, 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 uh, it seemed like the biggest risk in the world to pay that rent. Oof. And we stood there in this empty, probably only 500 square foot office then. And so, oh my God, what do we do now? You know, now we're really committed. Um, and there were, there were many, many points. I think uh, we got, we got an article in sports illustrated in July, 1990.
0: Is that known as Spike Lee?
1: uh it might have no he he was pictured in another article wearing our stuff so okay that was that, good.
0: that's what i remember this
1: had a picture of me uh and it was an article about uh our journey into flannel jerseys authentically we got such tremendous response from that it was like the mailman it was like christmas with the mailman bringing mail in sacks you know and giant <laughs> and and uh and, you know, like one of the letters was like from David Letterman and one of the letters was from, you know, people who had actually played in the Negro Leagues. And, you know, uh, that was really the moment where I thought, well, we've we've really touched something much bigger because I think, you know, it goes to my philosophy. I never thought of these uniforms as just graphics on clothing because anybody can do that. I I don't want to sound like I'm too self-important, but I really feel like if we're successful, we're kind of like instilling some emotional um, content into these garments. It brings back, you know, a lot more emotionally than just saying, oh yeah, that was an old team or that was an old logo. And so this Sports Illustrated, I think the writer happened to hit it pretty, pretty well, when he, the way he wrote it. And we got such a fantastic response. That's when I knew that, you know, this this is going to work.
0: You alluded, you alluded a few times to, you know, uh, doing the research and stuff. Right now, Jerry, it's so easy for me to Google 1912, you know, yeah. you know, Boston Beaner shirt. You get yeah. everything about it. Early on, it's going to sound ancient. How did you literally find out, like the Greenville yeah. Spinners, how did you find out their clothing, the colors? So-
1: so the first few years, I literally would travel to um, Cooperstown in the winter when no one was there and the snow was like four feet high. Because in those days, you can't do this anymore, I had the run of the library. You know, the the the, the, the town was basically shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the Hall of Fame was open, and and the National Baseball Library is there, and I would spend all of my time photocopying all the sporting news from the 1920s on, and that became my research files, and I put those in Manila files alphabetically by team or by city, and uh, the quality of a lot of the research was not great um, because it's you're you're basically copying black and white newspaper pictures, so. Uh, it's not like today, where you can get brilliant, high-resolution photos. Uh, and then I befriended a few collectors who were very kind and let me look at their. Uh, I'm looking at. You can't see. I'm looking at a a painting, a baseball painting by a guy named Richard Merkin, who used to write a column in a fashion column in GQ magazine, and he was a pretty well-known artist, but he was also a huge baseball fan and a collector. And he had this giant rent-controlled apartment on uh West End Avenue in New York. And um and it was amazing. And he had all this baseball ephemera uniforms, you name it. And he had like original, you know, uh Chicago White Sox 1919 jersey. Wow. He had he had things like you know, original Negro League jackets, which don't exist anywhere. So That's what I said. I mentioned earlier, I met some of some of the people just at the right time um, who shared their um, knowledge and their collections with me.
0: You got the pictures now. I don't know how you figured out the colors through these black and white pictures from the 20s. Now you have to go through the process of making the jersey. Was it so difficult finding the color? I know we're nerding out with uniform talk now, but was it difficult finding the colors and all the perfect material?
1: Yeah. The colors is hard because frankly, it's, it's not a science. It's an art. Um, there's no such, there is such a thing as colorizing a black and white photo, but there's no such thing as determining what original colors were in a black and white photo. So you have to match the photos with other research that confirms the colors and people like Todd Rader, who you mentioned, I've have, have done this. And, uh, I don't know if you remember the book, um, uh, I think the guy almost killed himself with the research with this book because he worked on it so long. Um, uh, baseball uniforms of the 20th century. I know. Yes. yes, yes. Okay. So um, I knew that gentleman too. And he he was, you know, talk about research. I don't have the attention span he did, but to sit in libraries and look at microfish and try to read articles that describe uniforms and the colors of the uniforms. Oof to do that for 10 years, you know, to produce that book. Um, so I did my own version of that. You know, you have to go, for example, you're wearing a San Francisco seals cap. I know that if I look at a, a photo black and white photo from that period, that the dark colors are going to be Navy and the light contrasting trim colors are going to be orange. Cause that was, and then they dropped the orange at a certain point around 1941, 42 and went to just Navy blue and I just have a knowledge that times hundreds of teams. But in the beginning, I didn't. So I had to acquire all of that knowledge. And, you know, I made a, I made a few mistakes, but surprisingly few on um, guessing colors or trying to fill in pieces of the puzzle.
0: You had a flagship store in Seattle closed. Any plans to open up one or it doesn't even make sense? Yeah, to have I you one? know
1: everyone loves a retail store. Um, the problem we had in Seattle was that the the amount and this is even before COVID. Unfortunately, the the burglaries and street crime were so severe. I could no longer, in good conscience, put some kid you know behind the counter because I was never in the store. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't a retail guy, and it wasn't in the same location uh, as our warehouse and offices. So I couldn't put somebody in the in literally in the line of fire. If a bunch of kids come and want to steal you know, $400 jackets, Mm -hmm. they're going to do it. Um, That was bad enough. But I think we were broken into five times in the last year that we were open. So when COVID happened and business sort of really stopped for a little while, almost entirely, we really had to evaluate um, what we were going to do going forward. And unfortunately, the, the retail store, as much as I loved it and customers loved it, just just didn't work in our, in our plans. We had to kind of pick what we were going to do. Um, if we ever open, if we ever have our offices again, like at one point the retail store was united with the rest of our offices mm-hmm. and that worked out really well because we didn't have to maintain a separate building or staff or utilities or any of that. So that may happen, but right
0: now I don't, I don't really see it. Why Seattle? What brought the Brooklyn boy out to Seattle?
1: Well, I was actually, you know, by way of Arizona, so my family moved to Phoenix in the 70s, in the mid-70s, and I was there for 10 or 12 years, and then I came to Seattle, just really no no particular reason. You know, people, it's so funny to talk about Seattle because when I came in the 80s, in the mid-80s, it was still kind of a working-class Boeing lumber town almost. It was not yet this this uh, edgy tech expensive mm-hmm. city. I I'm so lucky that I went to Seattle when I did because it was still possible for somebody like myself with, without much money, you know um, I, I got an apartment right away in the middle of the city, beautiful building. I had never not had roommates, you know, I was in rock band. So I always had roommates. <laughs> so I was and I found a minimum. I was making five dollars an hour, and it was working out really well. I was I was able to to live, and I, I started a business and got married all within a year and a half of moving to Seattle. So now it's changed quite a bit, as you can imagine, as most coastal big cities have. I don't think it, I feel sad because unless you have a trust fund, somebody couldn't do what I did in in the 1986, 87.
0: When you moved um, there, you're, you're on the West Coast now. What food do you miss the most from Brooklyn?
1: Oh, God. Well, it's got to be bagels and, uh, and, and pastrami <laughs> and, uh, and real New York. Okay, why can't anyone make real New York pizza? I don't know how many times people claim they're selling New York pizza <laughs> outside of New York, but that oily, great pizza that you got to fold up, that's what
0: I miss. That's who you miss the most, right? Yeah,
1: and it's it's uh you know, it's always called rays. Where did, I don't know where that got started.
0: Do you have a typical customer? Like a guy like me, I mentioned the Boston Babe jersey, yeah. the Joplin uh Miners, Mickey Mantle jersey. I love going to the stadium and someone looks and you get a real hardcore fan be like, "Is that the Mantle rookie jersey?" I'm like, "Yeah, he's wearing 12." Are your fans hardcore? Like, how has your clientele changed? Give me that whole thing.
1: Uh, Well, it has changed. We we still have that. That was the initial clientele. But we have kind of a more esoteric. Because we do a lot of obscure stuff, the people who don't want to be identified necessarily (laughs) as a sports fan love to wear our hats. And they love the quality of the hat and the graphics. So that really started happening around 2010. Okay. When we really got a lot of attention from um what I lovingly call the artisanal mayonnaise you know williamsburg set um you know the the hipster folks uh they gave us they gave us new life because they saw us as a um a craft brand you know those are folks who would never buy a new era Yankee hat, mm-hmm. but they would buy a you know obscure you know, Cuban league hat from Ebbets. And this is the interesting thing. And the difference I think between us and a lot of other sports apparel is the customers who buy from us, they're not looking on it. They're not buying on a team loyalty based, Mm -hmm. most of them. So if they, if they want to buy, say the seals hat, and then we come out with a hat from Puerto Rico and they like it, they'll buy that one. Whereas if you're a Mets fan, you just want the Mets. You don't want the Red Sox. You don't want the cops, right? So it's a little bit of a different um, kind of a uh, customer base
0: for that reason. My favorite thing uh, about your website is when you go down the rabbit hole, I mentioned the Greenville Spinners. You're yeah. not just going on there looking, oh, Shoeless Joe Jackson jersey. You click on it, and it gives you a story, a nice paragraph on Shoeless Joe, why he wore it, and this one, the Negro League. Was that yeah. always a part? Because obviously, maybe the past seven or eight years, I've been buying your products. Always. Is that always okay. part of it. Okay. Well, at the very beginning, we
1: had to educate people at the same time we sold them, which is very tricky because in the in the very first few years, we were a cataloger right so no we didn't have a major league baseball license nobody knew who the Homestead Grays were. everybody now does mm-hmm. since since you know Ken Burns and all the many things that have happened in the interim. but at the time, nobody knew who the Kansas City monarchs were or. Wow the Homestead Grays, or any of the uh, great Cuban teams. So you had to educate people and give them a story. You know, um, you had to show where a lot of the players came from originally. And and that was particularly true with minor league baseball. Um, You know, the DiMaggio brothers all came out of the San Francisco Seals, you know, the hat you're wearing. Um, Ted Williams, who came from the San Diego Padres, the original Pacific Coast League version of that team. Uh, Willie Mays, who played many in Minneapolis um, for the Millers. So, um, if you, I've, you know, what we realized is, if you gave people a story and you gave them a great product and it looked good, those three elements is what we try to get into an in Evans product.
0: Childish question. Any beef with Mitchell and Ness? Because you both do throwback jerseys. No, no, I. You know, here's
1: the funny thing. Um, you know, I told you earlier about calling people and bugging them when I was starting out. Peter Capolino was one of the people I called every day. He always, he's of course the founder of Mitchell and Mm -hmm. Ness, which is a vastly different kind of company now. He's retired, but um, I called him every day and he always took my call. And Peter and I are, uh, he was a mentor and an older brother figure and still one of my best friends in the world. And I have dinner with them probably three times a year. And, and uh, uh, you know, we're best of friends. So Mitchell and Ness and Ebbetsfield grew up together. Wow. And we used to share booths at trade shows even in the early days, you know. Um, and now they're they're a much, much bigger company mm-hmm. and and uh, they, they do a lot. of. But we both had some similar challenges. I told you about the wool flannel. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us had a steady supply of wool baseball flannel. So it made more sense for us to cooperate.
0: Wow, okay.
1: So not a lot of people know that. I'm really glad you asked me that
0: question. I, I was interested because I have the old Babe Ruth wool jersey from uh, from Mitchell Ness. Different yeah. ca- different kind of wool. I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's any beef because you guys don't sell the same products. I was wondering if there was any competition, not competition, any beef there. So I'm glad there's not.
1: No, no beef at all. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter uh, is just such a lovely guy. And, uh, you know, I first visited him in the store and where he his whole corporate his whole company used to be up the stairs and back of the Michelin S store on Walnut Street I
0: think or Chestnut or something right yeah, yeah
1: on Walnut Street 13th and Walnut and uh and I was one of the many people who who uh went up there and uh we used to hang out and and um and and we have ever since
0: you mentioned the Mexican League because you like the graphics. How else do you decide on a team, maybe a player yeah. or a league? How does that happen?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, again, like I said, it, I try to have multiple elements that are appealing. In other words, sometimes like you talk about the Mantle uh, Joplin Miners. It's a really boring hat. If it hadn't been associated with Mantle, we mm-hmm. wouldn't offer it. It's just a navy blue hat with a white J on it, right? Right. So that's an example of one where the significance of the player is enough. Other hats, I'll tell you, our best-selling hat, number one or two, the Kansas City Cats.
0: My and wife if, loves that. She wants to sweat. She loves think, that.
1: <laughs> I've sold thousands and thousands of that hat. <laughs> and the team, nobody knows anything about the team or the players. So that's, a, that's a, the completely opposite type of, of uh of, of, of sale that we do. Um, obviously the best is where you have both a great graphic and a good story. Um, so we try to do that. Um, and then there are things that I just personally love. Like, again, this Mexican thing, I, we're going to do it as a limited edition. I'm, I'm only going to make 50 hats per team.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: And we'll probably number them and make it, you know, like one of 50, two of 50 like that. Because I don't think we're going to, we're not going to sell that many. So why not make it really unique? If it's going to be obscure, make it really obscure <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and make it like a one-off collection that the serious, we do have some hat, especially in the hats. Yes, We do have some serious hat collectors that love our hats and respond well to the kind of the rarity of it. Mm-hmm. And since I'm a musician, I also look at marketing a little bit like, um, You have a lot of these retrospective box sets now, like bands that, you know, you take the Beatles or somebody, you know, instead of just reissuing the album, they have all the extra tracks. They have a book, they have a nice package Mm -hmm. and they do it in a limited production run. That's kind of how I think of uh, baseball hats now. I kind of want to do more and more of that.
0: Do you discontinue items like you mentioned the miners hat? Yeah. Like that you, you discontinue items sometimes too. Yeah,
1: we, we yeah we rotate on. We're up to like we have two hundred and fifty different hats on our Oof. website now. That's insane. It's so hard to maintain the and they're fitted, so you've got eight sizes. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, people get really mad if we're out of stock on this <laughs> particular. And I'm like, do you know how hard it is to maintain eight sizes of two hundred and fifty hats at all times? It's not possible to do that. Uh, we offer way too many because it's really hard for me to to part with any of my children.
0: You know? <laughs> Pop- popularity. Seals and the Knights are the two ones that stick out for me. What else are the really popular ones?
1: Well, the, the Cats, as I mentioned, is very popular. The Homestead Grays is very popular. Um, a team-wise, the Kansas City Monarchs, um, Jackie Robinson's minor league team, mm-hmm. Montreal Royals, always been a very big one. Um and then in uh in in on MLB jackets the uh satin Dodgers 50s Dodgers by far is the most popular um NFL jerseys just off the top of my head probably the Bart Starr Packers um which is just classic That's icon-
0: iconic yeah
1: yeah it's just iconic you can and the, you know a couple we've only been doing uh the the, jer- the NFL jerseys for a couple of years but like the Joe Namath we're the only one who ones who make a real you know sixty nine sixty eight jets jersey in the right fabric you know in that in that Dureen, um nylon cotton fabric that they used in the sixties,
0: speaking of teams, how big is your team your whole team of production team how big' is your team
1: well, it's pretty small still um, wow. you know we've gotten a little bigger the last couple of years. So design wise, I have about three people who helped me um, because, you know, I'm I'm a I'm not a designer, I'm a curator. Okay, so my skill is looking at the photographs and the research, figuring out the details and then kind of like from that uh, deciding what would work. It's almost like if you look at a, uh, this Mexico thing, I looked at 4,000 images. Oh. Literally, yeah, I did. So days and days of doing nothing but that. Out of that, I distilled maybe a hundred that are potential products, and then from there, then I've got to get that to someone who actually can use software to mock it up. Then I have a guy in production who actually orders a sample, and the, uh, and so to get that inspiration to go from that to a physical product, there's a lot of steps to it. So. Then we have a, you know, we cut our own felt lettering still. So we have a couple of people doing that. Um, We have some outside sewing contractors. So we're sewing down the lettering. Um, You know, we have a vendor who does sleeve patches. Wow. Um, So there's a lot of components. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle.
0: I'm a big fan of yours, obviously, and the company. And you brought so much attention and more, like everyone knows now about the Negro Leagues because of a lot of the stuff you did. Is it true that also the uh, you, the money from the Negro League sales you also send to the Negro League Museum? What's that? Well, I read that we, something you know, about you.
1: Yeah, we have a deal with the museum. We do a we do a uh, annual,
0: actually quarterly contribution um, to the museum. Yeah. And didn't you did you work on the movie Forty Two? Yeah, we did. Was that awesome yeah. for you? Like being Dodgers. That, really
1: that? that was the most fun thing I've ever. First of all. I can't emphasize enough the importance of Jackie Robinson as the inspiration. You know, it ties in Brooklyn, it ties in Ebbets it ties in my dad. So to, to be asked to work on that film, to me, was such an emotional experience um, and such an honor. And I remember meeting, I, I happened to, so the, the costume designer um, for that film is, is, is English, British. And I actually happened to be when I got word we were doing the film, I happened to be in London doing a trade show. <laughs> and so she was able to come and meet me. And she had done, she knew nothing about baseball. Zero. So I had to educate her, like, no, you want to stay away from that fabric. And she had one, one story about this that I that I love. Um, she had one image that she was obsessed with that she wanted to get in the film. I don't know why, but um, if you remember the story, or seeing the film, of course, um, when uh, Branch Rickey lost Leo DeRocher, his manager, and had to bring back Bert Schotton. Yeah, okay, okay. And Schotten said, I promised my wife I would never put on a uniform again. Right? So he dressed in street clothes. Um, however, he wore a satin Dodger jacket that went almost down to his knees. It was... Extra long, and she brought a picture of this, a black and white still, and said, I've gotta do this. And I said, You're in luck because I have that old rayon set.
0: You know, Unreal. I have a,
1: I have a few rolls of it that I have, have had for 20 years, and I'm gonna be able to make you that jacket. And in the scene, in the movie, there's a scene, he's wearing that jacket. So um, you know, stuff like that is just great. And some of it is just pure, pure luck.
0: Have you asked to be a consultant on other movies, other stuff like that? I don't know.
1: Yeah, we've done a few. You know, the movie, the movie biz is interesting. Actually, um, there's a movie. It didn't do great, but it was actually a great story called um, a few years ago. Catcher was a spy with Paul Rudd. Okay. So that movie was about the catcher Mo Berg, who went on tour with a, a team Babe Ruth led to Japan in 1934. And Mo Bird was not a great player. He was a mediocre player, light hitter, okay fielder, fielding catcher. And the reason he went on the tour to play with that team of American League All Stars is the U.S. government, um, the predecessor to the CIA, wanted him to take pictures of Japan's war preparations. So wow. while Moberg is in Japan playing baseball, he's also like photographing military installations and things like that. So they wore um, not only a great uniform; they they were uh, they wore a uniform um, with U.S. on it, U.S. tour. They wore these wonderful wool red jackets with leather sleeves, uh, suede leather sleeves, and um, in fact, the original. Babe Ruth's original jacket sold for something like a hundred, not um, something like four hundred thousand dollars at auction. So we outfitted that film and all the the uh, actors who played the players on that team are in the scene in our jackets walking walking. Oh, that's through. awesome! Yeah. So if you get a chance, um, it's not a bad movie if you're a baseball fan. It didn't do well generally, but I think as a baseball film, it's actually pretty good.
0: One more question about jerseys and designs you seem like you're an old soul you have all these old stuff the newer stuff the nike city edition the do you just cringe when you see some of this stuff
1: you know it it doesn't i used to be very very negative about all of that and i try to be a little mellower in my old age and be less (laughs) harsh and less harsh in my criticisms it's a different period you know the era that i do that i still prefer the reason i like it is it wasn't commercial they had to have uniforms to play in it wasn't really thought of much beyond that and you know the artist at a sporting goods company may have created the logo they happen to have on the hat or the uniform that year and that was what they did and I think there's a simplicity and an elegance and an honesty to that that I really love I find all the alternative uniforms and all the different events now, it's a little cynical because it's all done for marketing reasons. 100%. You know. I, I, it's successful. People like it. Fans like it. Who am I to complain? You know what I mean? It just doesn't interest me personally, you know, is, is all it is.
0: Ready to finish up with a few quick hit questions? Sure. Coolest person in your phone. You and I are back in Brooklyn at a bar. Who's the yeah. coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back?
1: Um, I hate to say it's not a baseball person, but, um, I'm a music fan and I know one of the go-go's (laughs) But her number, her number is in that.
0: That's a (laughs) solid answer.
1: It's in my phone. So there you go.
0: One sporting event you wish you could have witnessed live.
1: Oh my God. Uh, game six of the 1986 world series.
0: Every time I have a Met guy on Met fan, Met play, that's the one they always, I have the I'm a I Yankees mean, guy, but Howard Johnson's jersey is behind me. He signed it. Yeah. He just done a few weeks ago, and he says he – and all everyone ever wants to talk about. I know. If in a dream scenario, any league or team you wish you could pr- produce merchandise for?
1: Yeah. Um, I wish I could do uh, vintage caps for Major League Baseball teams in the same quality and, and authenticity that we do for all the other teams.
0: You're active on Twitter, but you need to promote your products more. You just retweet somebody. Why are you not doing commercials and stuff? Is that just not your thing? I don't know.
1: I you know, i will be honest with you, this is disappointing. I don't do any Twitter personally. I've got Andy who's uh I remember uh, distant replays in Atlanta. Oh, I do. The,
0: yes, distant-replays.com, right? Yeah, so, yes.
1: so Andy Hyman works for me and he does all my Twitter.
0: Oh, that's cool. I remember that company. That was when yeah. the I, Oh my god, wow.
1: Yeah. They, they were, they were like the big retailer. They sold us. They sold Mitchell and Ness and Andy's a great, you should have him on sometime. Um, I would love to. Andy's a great guy and I need Andy. I'll tell you why, because growing up I have this encyclopedic knowledge of sports history in terms of baseball, NFL, even a little bit NHL, but but the blank spot in my brain is college. As, as a New York kid or a suburban New Jersey kid, there was no need to be any fan of any college. We had such an embarrassment of riches in <laughs> professional sports that I never cared. I never cared about the final four. I never cared about wow. ball games. So Andy, that's what he does for us. Andy is a really great collegiate expert. He does all the collegiate research. We didn't talk about collegiate at all. He, he does all the collegiate research for me i choose the items i want to do okay but i have to say andy was that a gear for was that a big year for nebraska and he's like <laughs> yeah well they won the national championship and i'm like uh, i don't i don't know you know <laughs> so so he does our twitter um yeah
0: and how about this coolest piece of memorabilia you own i saw an interview with you you had guitars behind you so it can be a music thing, a sports thing, coolest piece of memorabilia Jerry Cohen owns.
1: Again, it's it's not something that's probably going to be familiar to a lot of people, but uh, I'm a big fan of a group called The Replacements. Okay. That was probably the greatest alternative rock group uh, in the 80s, uh, Paul Westerberg. And I own Tommy Stinson's bass um, that he played on their reunion tour in 2015. And he also played when he played bass for years for Guns N' Roses. Um, and I actually own that instrument. Um, I, I don't have a lot of memorabilia personally in baseball. I don't, I don't have too many items there. Oh, I do have some things. More in a uniform nerd kind of uh, interest. I have the dies, the cardboard dies they use to make the Red Sox uniform numbers in the original factory in the Ted Williams era. That's wild. And I have it in a box and it's got the handwritten notes from whoever oh. was in the factory. And I've got the number nine, the the, the die cut number nine in that Ted Williams nine. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have all the numbers and that very distinctive number font the Red Sox use. We call that the Boston font. So whenever we say that Jersey gets a Boston font, which ironically was used by the Yankees for a while, very really years. okay. Yeah, like in the '30s. If you look, um,
0: that's awesome.
1: So I own that, and that's that's pretty cool.
0: See, I, I love. I don't want to be like, oh, I have a G to sign jersey. I want something unique. That is, that's a great unique answer.
1: Yeah, it's not worth any money to anybody, you know. But it's it's very cool.
0: I'll be honest, Jerry. I've wanted to do this for a while. This was a blast. Not that you need this, but give the plug where everyone can follow you on Twitter sure. uh, and check out where you can purchase your products, man, because they are just they're unbelievable. Yeah,
1: we're we're mostly online, so ebbets. dot com, dot com, and everything is up there. And uh, you know, we're we've got a Facebook page and uh, Instagram and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah
0: dude. This was a blast. I've been dying to do this. Well, hang up and hit me up with Andy's number, man. Thank you so much for doing this, Jerry.
1: Yeah, thank you. Sorry it took so long to get me. Oh, who cares? Um, It was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate your patience. Thank you.
0: My friend. Talk to you soon, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.